the New York Diner breakfast. They've they've nailed it. It needs no notes. I have no notes on the New York City Diner breakfast. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, we welcome Linda Holmes. Linda is a pop culture correspondent for NPR and the host of the popular Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. She's also a novelist, and we talk about her recent release, Flying Solo. We also talk about some cool topics in the crossover of food and pop culture, including meal kits, Olestra, the Flavor Bible, macaron rules that need to be broken, food on TikTok, specifically cinnamon rolls covered in apple pie filling. I don't really know much about that one. The New York City Diner Needing No Notes, Wrestling with the Legacy of Anthony Bourdain, and the Supremacy of Netflix show Is It Cake? I really love this conversation with Linda, and I hope you do too. Linda Holmes, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So, Linda, I I really enjoy your food writing in the kitchen section of your website. I feel like there's some fun. It's from 2015 and 16, so it's not like that new. But I had something caught my eye, and let's talk about it. Okay. So you write, why do people ever cook eggs in even a small amount of butter when I can make a perfectly good egg in a dry nonstick skillet and save all the monstrous poison? (laughs) Yeah. So I should be clear. That is a philosophy I now realize I had as a young person who had taken in a ton of diet culture. That is not a philosophy I actually espouse now. Um, And I always try to say, you know, there are people who have dietary restrictions or religious reasons, allergies um, for the way that they eat and cook. So I, I try to very hard to stay out of the business of saying that anybody cooks or eats wrong. Um, but I do think the dogma that I grew up with that was literally fat phobic, right? It was literally this idea that you had to remove all fat from everything that you made really without any regard for sort of what it was doing in the recipe or what it was doing in the making of the food. And I actually wrote about that in a piece where I was talking about adding olive oil to a a marinara recipe. And it was like, yeah, it's in there for a reason. It's in there because it does something. So you don't just strip it out just because, you know, oil is bad, butter is bad. So I, when I was writing about that, it was really trying to kind of, you know, get at what I had allowed to settle in my own mind in terms of like, oh, I should cook everything in a dry skillet if I possibly can, because butter is poison. And when you get past that, you learn that like, no, you know, it's such a cliche to say moderation, but yeah, you know, an egg, even a little bit of butter kind of helps an egg out. Yeah. I'm glad you've, uh, you course corrected on that a little bit, but, but but I respect that you had that take at one point. And I agree. I grew up in the nineties and, and, you know, Snackwell's household where, you know, eating like 18 grams of sugar per cookie was, was okay. But, you know, fat was, uh, was not okay. And we, we wrote about, we had a nineties issue. It tastes like two years ago. I mean, do you have any other memories of this like fat phobic, fat free? Oh, absolutely. World? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, and again, you know, people have their reasons for things, but we went through a whole period where there was a lot of like fat free shredded cheese. 
And, you know, (laughs) know you could put it on something, but like it didn't really melt and it tasted weird. And again, you know, if you have your reasons for some other, you know, cause for, for using anything, that is fine. But to me, there got to be a lot of, you shouldn't have any of this. So we're going to invent something that is actually not a good substitute for that at all. And I think one one thing that happened to me as a person who grew up always having to deal with and worry about my weight was that you get to the point where you feel like, why can't I enjoy substitute fat-free cheese? And you have to be able to allow yourself to say, because I don't like it, because it's bad. Because it's made in a test tube. Well, and if you want to eat differently, there are lots of actual, like not substitute foods that you can eat, right? And in in many cases, there are good substitute foods, right? Like there are a bunch of um, meat substitutes that I like and have eaten and have enjoyed. Um, But there are also ones that don't work at all. And, you know, rather than have fat-free cheese, for example, I would rather just figure out something else to eat, like rather than try to simulate with something that's not going to make me particularly Can we talk about Olestra? Do you remember Olestra? Boy, do I. Yeah. Boy, and I mean, it, it was so amazing how there was that brief moment where they were kind of telling people, you, you know, you can have some of the things that people who were trying to eat low fat really missed the most um, chips and stuff like that. But it was, it, was a, it was a fat substitute. It was I remember vividly how Lay's would, would, was made using a Lestra and it was something that um, gave you the mouthfeel, the unctuous mouthfeel of a potato chip and fat, but it offered low fat. And Linda, do you want to <laughs> what's your take on the the result? <laughs> 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 so you don't want to say it. I don't want to say it. But I know, I'll, we just, don't want to say it. I'll just say it made people, it gave people intestinal upset of a yeah. particularly distasteful sounding sort yeah. to the point where, you know, <laughs> the phraseology around the havoc that it, it wreaked on people's systems became iconic diet language of, uh, of its time. Well said. You're a, you're a, you're a, a person of, of letters and, and, and words, <laughs> and I will potentially link to you in Alestra Wikipedia in the show notes, but right. uh, I may not. Sure, uh, sure. Linda, any other, do you have any other possibly controversial food takes? I mean, I think my most recent one is that I think meal kits have a real place in particularly a depressed person's kitchen. Um <laughs> For me, meal kits were a really good bridge from a time during, particularly during the worst of the pandemic, when I really got out of the habit of cooking for myself. I, I really did not have mental energy. It was too easy to you know, order in, especially once people felt like, yeah, you're not going to get you know, COVID from deliveries and stuff like that. Too easy to order in, too easy to eat garbage. You know, I just, I didn't have the mental energy for the planning and shopping um, to cook for myself. I did, I did a, a period of time when I was doing meal kits and it helped me get back sort of into my kitchen without putting quite as much pressure on myself. And, you know, people worry a lot about the packaging, which I get, and that is absolutely an issue. People worry about the labor issues, although, you know, supermarkets of course have their own, you know, everybody does. Um, I did like the fact that you get a lot less food waste. Food waste is a real challenge when you are one person. Um, 
especially if you're trying to eat healthy things made of real food, they are often not packaged for one person. Let me let me have one minute on meal kits because I honestly I'm so pro meal kits. I you know, I'm like food writer guy hashtag, you know, write whatever write cookbooks and like a lot sure. of food writers certainly don't admit to enjoying food uh, kits. I'm a Hungry Root subscriber. They are not a paid sponsor, FYI. I fully agree with you that when you, you want to turn your mind off but you want to actually cook, meal kits are the answer. And the meal kit maybe isn't even the right word. I think that might turn people off. The box of ingredients to yeah. make four meals. Yep. And, I, and I agree with you fully. We've written about it on Taste in two separate occurrences about the waste. I mean, it really, yes, it, it, it is kind of, counterintuitive to grab baggies of, of certain ingredients. Exactly. And, and that's kind of true. But if you actually look at the waste, if you're going to a grocery store and buying, you know, five or six meals worth of ingredients, you're going to waste more. Plus, as you said, the labor practices at these grocery stores and the waste at the actual space grocery stores are too big. We've all talked about that for a long time there's too much selection, there's too much waste. Anyways, thank you for the minute. I fully agree with you. Absolutely. It's one of those you know, ethical consumption under capitalism is a really difficult thing to figure out. But I think, you know, once you decide that you're going to, you know, do the best you can within the situation that you have, as I said, I think they have a place, um, you know, especially in really difficult moments. I also know people who have really reached for um, those kinds of options when they have been recovering from, you know, a medical issue or they're overwhelmed with family stuff. It can really, just take a little bit of friction out. So I definitely think there is a place for that. What, do you have a favorite brand or or, or kit? I did. Um, I I did HelloFresh for for sure. quite a while. Liked them pretty yeah. well. Um, you know, felt like the food was mostly pretty good. They also have a lot of different you know plans that you can join. And again, this is not an ad for them. I you know I I I think there's there are plenty that are um, that are good. Yeah, definitely. Um, Cookbooks. Let's talk about it because I feel like you 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 consume food media and you you write some you know food writing. Are there books that you've that you've kind of gravitated towards this this past couple years of COVID? It's interesting. I've become I think a little bit more of a, a website person than a cookbook person, as I think a lot of people have. I spend a lot of time on NYT cooking. I spend a lot of time at Series Eats, but. Um, I do love the, you know, I love the Kenji Lopez all the food lab. I love, um, you know, I love the best recipe out of Cooks Illustrated if I'm in the mood to spend like 17 steps making brownies or whatever um, and get a really good result. Uh, I love the flavor Bible, which is um, very good for figuring out kind of what's going to work together if you're not technically operating within a an individual recipe. So there are cookbooks that I go for and I have not been willing to let go of my collection of cookbooks yet, even though I so often, you know, work off of, like I said, internet sources um, and, you know, people I discover online, but I still have my cookbooks. I can't. Linda, keep them yeah, around. For sure. Keep yeah. them around. I, there's, it's, I, I would never, I, I would never get rid of them, especially not my, not my favorite ones. Yeah. And uh, I think you're right. There's definitely a, a, a period in time where you're like, okay, I just want to look online and it's much easier, but I think we talk about a lot in the Taste Podcast cookbooks more than the recipes or document or book. Um, and I love uh, I love Kenji's work in the food lab. It's a good book. Very yeah. Solid. Oh, absolutely. I love that book. And I love, like, I love a nerd in general when, and I, I like the fact that Kenji's very good and there are certain people in, in food world who are really good at this. Like, 
when they are explaining why you do things. And, you know, one of my favorite things about Kenji is that Kenji is somebody who will say, well, this is what people always tell you. Do you actually have to do this or not? Uh, I can't remember if it was Kenji who did the the sort of the investigation uh, of whether you really needed to dry out um, macarons before you made them. But it's one of those things that absolutely everybody says that it's an example of a, a rule that, you know, I, I don't even remember what entirely the result of that was, but it's one of those things where everybody says this is how you do it. And then sometimes Kenji is somebody who will investigate something and say, actually, this doesn't matter. <laughs> He steps up to the microphone and, and, and does the, does the bold, takes the bold step, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. Um, I have to ask you about food TikTok. Are you, are you down? Are you, I mean, are you, are you on TikTok at all? I, I am modestly on TikTok. I am not <laughs> a, I am not a, um, a big poster to TikTok. I enjoy TikTok. There's a, uh, you know, there's a talking dog on there. I like there are some, um, there are some people who work in either food or like there's a woman who does like basically social justice and cleaning, house cleaning, um, who's wonderful. And, and I love listening to her. Um, in terms of food and cooking TikTok, like you definitely can get some good and fast ideas, which everybody needs sometimes on how to quickly get something on the table yeah. Um, you know, that, that you will like, I do think there's a, there again, a place for that, but I also really like, I don't know if you've ever seen that the account where the guy counts down how long it is into any crock pot video before they put a block of cream cheese in the, in Oh my the God. Pot. I know this one. It's so great. It's, it's really funny. Cause it's really true. And you do learn like what those combinations of like, it's going to be a combination of some kind of cream soup, rice, you know, chicken, you know, uh, Laurie's spice blends and stuff yeah, like that. I love that. And people will cook it and they'll eat it. And if that's how you cook and eat and feed your family, then rad for you. I'm a Midwest guy. So I definitely had plenty of, uh, Philadelphia cream cheese blocks. You bet. Landing in the Crocs. Hot dish, man. Hot dish is the best. Um, you know, I, I agree like these TikTokers I and mean, John Kung was on the episode on the show. And, and I think talks about, um, this very, um, unique time that we're in where actually TikTok teaches us how to cook, actually gets us, you know, gets food on the table. I feel like other forms of media, including print, don't necessarily do that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think TikTok, TikTok is an opportunity to see the way that people often actually cook um, and the kinds of recipes that people actually really welcome. And I think when you've done the social history to understand the role of convenience foods when convenience foods were first developed and the role of you know um, certain kitchen appliances and stuff like that, that the, the, the way that those things changed the labor, particularly of women, um, you know, you got to understand that people need to eat. And sometimes they don't have the time to do every day the kind of, well, I start with fresh ingredients and I chop all my vegetables and I, you know, sometimes if you can introduce them to, you know, the, the bottled sauce that tastes good, the, the, um, you know, the quick grain that you can make easily. And you can kind of get people to a place where, they can accomplish what the thing is. Now that doesn't mean there aren't certain things. Like I remember seeing one thing that was like, 
I can't even remember what it was, but it was something like just cinnamon rolls and a can of frosting, like a can of cake frosting. You definitely see stuff on TikTok where you go, whoa, I don't even think that would be enjoyable. It's just fast. Um, But, you know, oh, I know what it was. It was cinnamon rolls and a can of apple pie filling. Oh, really? Just that was all that was in it. And it's like, look, if you really want that sugar bomb, I bet that is a sugar bomb. And I'm not saying that I've never had a day when I might eat that. But I do like it when they're maybe a little bit more appealing and complex bit more. than cinnamon rolls, can, a canned cinnamon roll covered with apple pie filling. But, you, but if you go to a diner, you're going to find that. in a diner. You bet. Like cinnamon rolls and, and pie filling. Like together. 100%. I one, time, I one time ate at some restaurant or another, I think some... I can't even remember where uh, cinnamon roll French toast, which winds up being cinnamon rolls with maple syrup on them, I know, which is w- wild, right? Which and is also wonderful. If you have ever had cinnamon roll French toast, which I have, and it was good, you certainly have no business looking down your nose at cinnamon rolls with apple pie filling on them. No truths. Now let's talk about the diner because you you actually set your fiction in diners and yeah. in Flying Solo you have some diner. Um, action, but let's talk about what the diner represents to you, and, and how you know we know the Quentin Tarantino diner scene, like that's mm-hmm. so well known in, in pop culture. But but we we actually see it in other forms of pop culture, and I wonder why it works so well. Uh, in Sweet Bitter, there's like that book and the series. There's a lot of diner scenes in there, and those are two that pop, come to mind. Varying levels of quality, yeah, in my opinion. So, what what does the diner uh, mean to you? I think, first of all, diners are a place that I always feel comfortable because when I travel, I often travel by myself. And a diner is often a place that I feel very comfortable taking a book and like, assuming it's not crowded and you don't feel like you're taking their table, um, to go in there and drink coffee and eat breakfast and drink more coffee and read a book and just be in the quiet. It is a place that I feel unselfconscious about being by myself compared to more of a sit-down restaurant. And it feels a little more fun to me than, you know, a, a fast food situation. So I love a diner when I'm traveling in particular. And I especially love New York diners. And I, I know that is such a cliche and it is, you know, I am I am not a, a fancy person for saying that, but um, I, I did a podcast one time where they asked me about simple pleasures. And I, I specifically said the New York diner breakfast um, is just to me such a They've they've nailed it. Like they've knocked it. It's you don't. It needs no notes. I have no notes on the New York City diner breakfast. You know. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's true. And 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 you know you can go in many directions. I think you know you go omelet. You can go short stack. You can go hash browns. I mean, there's. Yep. You always have toast that's buttered properly. Yep. Absolutely. I I tend to be like a blueberry pancakes girl. If uh, if they have if they have that and uh, if it looks like it's going to be good. I like blueberry pancakes, but I also will go for like the the omelet with a potato situation and that kind of stuff. I can also enjoy that. So it really depends. I and I think in fiction, you know, diners are often places of comfort and conversation. And again, I think they sort of have less, you know, they free everybody up to be talking and socializing more than eating at home does where you're constantly writing around people sort of shuffling through the kitchen and cooking and which has its own charm. There's a, a big, um, there's a big cooking, you know, di- sort of having friends over for dinner section in my first book. Um, 
but the diner kind of frees everybody up to be thinking about other stuff and talking and hanging out. And so to me, diners are are a great place for kind of conversation to happen. How do you think about food in your, in your fiction when you're writing fiction? I mean, do you like to write uh, details uh, that bring the reader into your into this universe and actually show that, you know, this is a real place, authentic place or on the con- I think some fiction you, it can be distracting if they if you get right. too much detail into the scenes if you right. the plot driven piece you know right I think you know I'm not a person who writes those sort of um, you know fantasy fiction feast scenes where it'll go on for you know six pages talking about the food I'm not I'm not that writer I think there are situations as I said there's a there's a big meal a big shared meal in my first book that is um, that is really uh, it, it sort of spirals down into an argument and it becomes a really rough night. And I think I spent a lot of time talking about kind of how um, how bountiful and and lovely of a summer night meal that started off to be because I wanted the contrast between kind of this great, um, really beautiful, welcoming kind of um, bounty that people had ready for them. And the fact that then it sort of turns into like, well, then you kind of get through dinner and it's really hot. So you go outside and people are drinking beer and that's sort of how things start to um, unravel. And that to me is is how many uh, an actual bad night um, happens. So it really depends on the circumstances. There's not a ton of food description in this book just because it didn't really have that same uh, need. Right. I wanted to get your take on some food and pop culture crossovers, given your expertise and interest in pop culture. So do you have a favorite food scene in TV or film? You know, I was thinking about this because, you know, people people always um, people always talk about sort of the classics. They talk about Big Night and, sure. and things like that. I love Big Night. I loved that movie when I saw it. Um, but I don't. You know, there's there's not a big thing that occurs to me that's of that type, right? That's of the sort of grand type. Making the meal I, for the guest who's arriving later. Right. I do really like, there's a scene in Bridesmaids where Kristen Wiig is very down in the dumps and she makes for herself a single cupcake and then eats it. She's a baker. And I, and she has lost her bakery. Her bakery has, has failed and she is making herself one cupcake at home. And I think the simpler reading of that is she's just very depressed. She makes a cupcake and eats it alone. Boo hoo hoo. I have always saw seen in that a little bit more of, she is trying to get back in touch with something that makes her feel um, accomplished. She's trying to feel good about herself. She's trying to feel connected to doing the thing that she loves. And in that sense, it is unsatisfying, but it's, you also really see the effort that she puts into it. You see how carefully she makes this one cupcake just for herself. And I've actually always felt like that scene really gets at the art of, of cooking and baking in a way that a lot of things don't because it's, she's only for her. She, it's yeah, just it's a to solo touch her treat. own it's just to touch her own love of of doing that, and I I appreciate it for that reason. Yeah, I, I it's an iconic scene, and I, and I think um, cupcakes in pop culture and film. I mean, I I go right to the Hallmark Channel mm-hmm. because the Hallmark Channel all they have so many 
plots that are they around sure cupcake do. stores. They sure do. Cupcake bakeries. They sure Cupcake do. competitions. And so do so do books. So does yeah. kind of um, you know, what we would consider be either romances or you know, what they classify as more like women's fiction, which is a weird category. But um, but yeah, you also have a lot of books about about baking. I I it's also one of those things that kind of becomes a thing and then it stays a thing. And for a while, cupcakes, cupcakes also were legitimately like in the world, a big thing. You would also see like cupcake shops springing up in different places, places that, you know, primarily specialized in, in specifically cupcakes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it echoed something going on in the world, but yeah, Hallmark is a big fan of, um, many sort of domesticity adjacent small businesses so and that's one of them um what food detail do you think hollywood consistently gets wrong that's a great question i think you know very rarely are meals in hollywood that are cooked at home very rarely do they go into that thing of like who's cleaning up like who who is cleaning up after dinner um who is clearing the table you know, you'll see people sit down and, you know, very often everyone else is sitting down and then one person comes in with the turkey or the ham or the big dish of whatever, as opposed to how I always experience big meals like that, which is like people are kind of milling around and one person's bringing in something else. And then, you know, half the people are sitting down and the other half aren't. I think kind of the cacophony of of serving and then cleaning up after a meal, which I think is one of the, the fun things often does not come through in, in scenes like that. My, uh, my, my qualm is uh, they are always prepping like 18 to 25 times more vegetables than they need for anything. <laughs> it's really true. And there's a lot of like, there's a lot of, um, you know, only slicing things into strips. Like you'll see a lot of people slicing peppers into strips because of the I assume because of the appearance of that, as opposed to like not a lot of people getting into that messy business of dicing onions, which of course is like the biggest chopping task. Uh, so, you know, it's just, you got to go for the pretty stuff. Lots of slicing cucumbers, you know? Oh yeah. They always, so are you, are you into food competition shows? Do you have any favorites out there? I know it's a bit, I mean, it's a big genre in television, you know, Top it Chef is, is still, a war horse with ratings and people are, you know, always still talking about it. Yeah. I think Top Chef has really, it's one of the rare shows that has really improved in the, you know, when it had already been on for 15 seasons. I think what they've been doing in the last few seasons uh, in terms of the diversity of the chefs, not just in terms of the um, their identities, but also in terms of their cooking styles. I think the judges have gotten better about understanding different kinds of cooking and different kinds of food. I think um, Padma Lakshmi's influence has been tremendous on that show. If you look at some of the other work that she's done, you can kind of see that she's a real guiding hand for, for that sort of appreciation of different kinds of food. So I love Top Chef, man. I still really enjoy watching Top Chef. I think they've kind of managed to revitalize it. I have watched a lot of, you know, I, I'll watch Chopped a lot for like a month and then I've had enough of it and I don't watch it again for six months. Um, Interesting. Like at and, night, do you watch it at the end of the night, end of the day after a busy day? More like on a Saturday. Yeah. Like when I'm cleaning the house, I'll just have Chopped running in the background for 12 consecutive hours, kind of that sort of thing. Um, uh, but but then I get sort of 
burned out on that. I do actually think Chopped is an interesting show for people who are who like cooking to to watch and appreciate. You do learn a little bit about like you just need something that's an acid and something that's you know I think it has some things to teach. Um, but mostly, I would say Top Chef, um, and then all the other stuff is kind of the silly baking, the silly baking things that. You know, I'll I'll catch some uh, I'll catch some spring baking championship or some kids baking championship. I Those like are always kids. fun. Do have like you, kids have, baking championship. Have you checked out Is It Cake? Oh, I watched all of Is It Cake. Let me yeah, tell you, I was at the favorite. I was the person at NPR who watched Is It Cake, and then I was like, I'm going to write something about Is It Cake, and they were all like, I don't know why. I said, You got to understand, it's this show. It's going to be big on Netflix, which it was. What can I tell you? You got the advance and you you knew because it, it's a combination of intrigue. It's a great host. And it's just very, very, very weird. It's well, weird, it's, weird pastry uh, creations. Yes. And it's self-aware in the sense that Truly. everybody associated with that kind of knows that it's a very silly idea. Yeah. And you do actually get to see some people who are involved in these hyper-realistic cakes, and which is a very specific skill. Often, I wouldn't want to eat the cake. Because the cakes that are used in those kinds of things usually to be good for carving are usually very, 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 very dense, um, or they look to be. So I don't think I'd want to eat the cakes, but hey, I admire people who can make something look exactly like a shoe. Yeah, and 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 listener, if you uh, don't know what we're talking about, then title "Is It Cake" kind of suggests what we're doing here. So yep, absolutely, it's on Netflix. Um, Okay, I, th- these are the big questions. Big, big question is: Do you have a favorite food film? Food is there like a like a food or food adjacent film? <sighs> I'm choking so hard. Um, I There's so many bad ones. That's I, probably why. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think you so often see the um, the image of the chef as sort of a blowhard, sort of like a mean dude who's angry all the time for a while. That was very, I think as people tried to wrestle with Anthony Bourdain and very often got Anthony Bourdain totally wrong. um, I think as people tried to wrestle with that, you got those kind of unpleasant chef movies. Um, But I don't know if I have a favorite, a a favorite food film. It's okay. I mean, it's a tough one because I think the genre is so watered down, pun intended. It feels like um, it's thin stock. Another pun intended. It it doesn't have a great reputation, I guess, with pop culture critics like yourself. Yeah. And so to like stand hard for one of them in this conversation would be difficult. I'm I'm a little bit at a loss. I think the documentary side is much better. For but, sure. For sure. Know, documentaries are very strong. There have been um, some really really nice. Um, there have been some really nice documentaries about chefs and about food. Um, I really liked the High on the Hog one. Um, and I really liked uh, I've really liked a couple of the I've really liked a couple of the other ones. I think the um, I think the salt, fat, acid, heat, you know, which, again, is a real cliche. But to, to say you love that because everybody loves that, but everybody loves that because it's really good. Um, and I loved that. I love that series as well. Yeah, the filmmaking in that show, I think, is is less stated. I think it's a really, really beautiful show. And, and Samin is an incredible host. And I think it's coming back this fall. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I think her, I think it, both in the book and in that show and in her persona in general, her generosity is at odds with what some people expect to be a kind of dogmatic approach from chefs and food people. She's really very, and actually Padma Lakshmi is the same way. 
um, really open to learning what other people like to eat and what other people like to cook. And I'll say about Samin that um, her recipe for that like massive homemade lasagna was one of the first really satisfying things I did during the pandemic. I made the noodles from scratch. I made the sauce. I made the, you know, I made everything in that lasagna from scratch. And I'll tell you, it was very good. I know it's a good one. And I, I, I respect Samin for bringing that to the forefront. Um, do you have a favorite chef memoir or chef book that you pull, that you go to? Do I have a favorite chef book? Or I'm food sure, memoir, I guess. Like, Yeah, you know. I'm sure I do. And I feel like I am, I, I feel like I'm, I must, I have read some chef memoirs. Um, I have, you know, I read a lot of, I did read a lot of Tony Bourdain. Um, and I think his stuff, particularly as he got past, you know, like I think Kitchen Confidential is the most famous book, but in some ways, the farther he got into things, the more I appreciated and enjoyed the the subtleties of some of his writing. I really do like his writing a great, great deal and, and, and miss it all the time. Absolutely. I miss yeah. I miss his writing as well and his his presence just in food media. I like Laurie Wolver's um oral um auto, uh, oral biography of, of Anthony Bourdain that came out earlier mm-hmm. or no, uh, late last year. So I, I yeah. highly recommend that one. Okay. Um Linda, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast if there was a dream cookbook project that you could work on without the burden of of time meaning you wouldn't have a deadline, budget meaning you get unlimited funds, what would that cookbook be? I think um, I would love to explore, um, you know, one of the things that the that the new novel is about, and I promise this is not a, a um, an effort to to tie back to the book, but please, please, one of the things that the book is about, that Flying Solo is about, is a is kind of beloved things that are handed down in families, and I think one of the things that I love is learning about the recipes that are handed down in people's families, and. There are many, 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 many cookbooks like that. So it is not a um, it is not a gap, but I think it would be really interesting to visit a variety of places and get a sense of what the inheritance, what the what the food inheritances are in terms of you know what was the first thing you learned how to make. I mean, I would love to talk to a hundred different people and say what was the first thing you learned how to make, even cool. if it's a grilled cheese sandwich. You know, it's cool. I like that. So so how food is inherited from family, and what is the first thing you make? That I like that. Yeah, because so I because I think receptive. I think most people who learn to cook learn something early on that they feel proud of being able to make. You know? Yeah, or or they failed and they wanted to redeem themselves later on. Exactly, right? or they worked really hard to, 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 to sort of crack it, you know? And I think there are so many great, um, there are so many great people out there in food world now. I, you know, I love all the people who kind of spun out from the, uh, this kind of implosion at Bon Appetit. I, I love Soleil Whaley and Priya Krishna and Rick Martinez and all those folks. There's so many cool and fun food people who are exploring all kinds of interesting corners of food. Um, I just think it's always interesting to hear from as many people as possible about right the on. food that they grew up making. Right on. Linda Holmes, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com 
and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.